ground. Poor Pearl, poor girl, her head was never found. Hey everybody, thank you for taking the paranormal train. And stopping here at Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. I'm your host, Tessa Morrow, and those tunes, as always, are courtesy of the amazing Bobby Mackey. We are about to take a magical adventure. Picture it. Queens, New York. A man stands there, surrounded by headstones, surrounded by death. He heartbreakingly stares at the gravesite before him. Every time he left New York for a tour or a trip, this is the place he would go to upon his return. Cecilia Weiss. That man standing at the gravesite is Eric Weiss. That was his given name, of course, but he made a name for himself. Houdini. And Cecilia Weiss? That is Houdini's one and only sweet mother. He cherished his mother, and as a child, he felt he often had to fight for her attention as he was not an only child. Uh Uh-uh. The Weiss household had seven children total. Growing up, though, as long as Cecilia was alive and breathing, the dedicated son, Houdini, always made time for her. And he always made it a goal to try to be back home for her birthday. But now that she's gone, he still stayed true to his word and visited her in that Queen's Cemetery. A cemetery that he also eternally rests at now as well. The great Houdini's life was abruptly turned upside down when Cecilia passed away. He was away from home. He had just finished performing in Denmark. He received saddening news, crushing news. His mother, one of the very most important people in his life, has died. When he hears this tragic news, he faints. When he regains consciousness, he sobs uncontrollably, crying, Mother! My dear little mother! Poor little mama! He would later write these words regarding her death. I, who have laughed at the terrors of death, who have smilingly leapt from high bridges, received a shock from which I do not think recovery is possible. Houdini requested his mother's body not be buried right away, as was Jewish custom. He immediately returned back to New York and 12 days after Cecilia died, her son was back and by her side in their New York home. And there he stayed all night. After the burial, for several weeks after, it was really kind of rare that Houdini would leave the family house. The only time he would actually go was to the cemetery to visit her grave. He missed her so much. He visited her every day and, matter of fact, every night, quarter past midnight, the time that she died. He would lay on the cold ground, embracing his mother's grave, and sob and speak to her, begging her to let him know what her last words were. At the one-year anniversary of her death, he was still doing this. He gathered every letter she had ever written him and typed them out, making a book out of it, and he would read it often. And in his will, he wrote specific instructions. 
It is my wish that all my darling beloved mother's letters, also the two enclosed letters, shall be placed in a sort of black bag and used as a pillow for my head in my coffin, and all to be buried with me. His wife, Bess, would often wake up into the dark of night to hearing her husband's voice calling out to his beloved mother, Mama, are you here? Houdini wrote many heartbreaking words gathered into sentences, usually on black bordered stationery to indicate his mourning. Quote, I'm hoping that eventually I will have my burning tears run dry, but know that my heart will always ache for our darling mother. My very existence has seemed to expire with her. I feel as if my heart of hearts went with her. Unquote. Over a year after her death, he writes in his journal, basically, I don't know, wishing for death to be reunited with his mom. Quote, Here I am, left alone on the station, bewildered and not knowing when the next train comes along, so that I can join my mother. Unquote. On a less heartbreaking note, before becoming the magician, and adventurous and daring man we know who Dini was, he tried his hand at several other types of work, such as a medicine show Mountie Bank, a trickster on the dinghy circuit, and even played around with mediumship. When Houdini's father passed away, he started searching for mediums. Not just anyone would do. He was looking for true, legit, professional mediums. His mother was beyond devastated and into deep mourning and grieving for her beloved husband, Mayor Samuel. Mayor believed while alive that it was very possible to communicate with the deceased. I mean, I don't know, could it be true? Speaking with someone you loved even though they aren't physically there to vocally respond? His mother and him would attend seances where he would try to communicate with his late father. To hire the mediums, he pawned off his father's watch. To say the least, Houdini was severely disappointed with the outcome. He was full-heartedly wanting to hear his father's disembodied voice. What was occurring before his eyes is mm, what he believed to be a crock of shit. He starts thinking. His old man didn't know what he was thinking. Communicating with the dead? <laughs> Ludicrous. Ridiculous. Impossible. I don't think so. Houdini noticed that in the New York Herald, many a medium would put ads in what he thought desperate hopes to get clientele. Houdini suspected it was much more than helping mom reach dad or Aunt Helen communicating with Uncle Phil. He suspected the medium thing to be a front for scandalous things such as prostitution and other types of schemes of extortion. He was becoming very much a skeptic, Houdini was, when suddenly a young lady came barreling into his life. <coughs> and she was very much a believer when it came to the spiritual world. Enter Bess Rayner, an 18-year-old girl that hailed from Brooklyn. She was actually introduced to Houdini by none other than his own elder brother, Dash, who was part of the magic duo. They dated for about two weeks before getting married. Talk about a speedy courtship, huh? 
Emotions ran high in both families, which dealt with it completely differently, to say the least. You see, Bess was raised Roman Catholic, and her mother, oh God, she was beyond horrified (coughs) that her daughter was marrying a Jewish man. Not only was she marrying a Jew, but he was some type of magician, apparently, who wasn't even making enough money to support himself, let alone her daughter. Meanwhile, Houdini's mom, Cecilia, oh, she could not be more happy. She welcomed Bess into the Weiss family with open, welcoming arms, all while telling her, you are my daughter now. Bess's family, well... They unfortunately never really warmed up to the idea that their Roman Catholic daughter married a Jewish man. And when Bess died, several years after Houdini, who, by the way, had a headstone for Bess to be buried with him, which remains there, by the way. But, you know, her family went against Bess and Houdini's wishes and buried her in a different cemetery, forever separating her from her beloved. Very sad, not cool. But, you know, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Shortly after they marry, Houdini wanted to teach his wife how to appear psychic. Truth is, he wanted her to replace his brother Dash in the Houdini show. One evening, he asked her to write the name of her dead father on a piece of paper. She had never told Houdini her father's name. He then asked Bess to burn the paper in a gas flame that he had lit. He then asked her to hand him the ashes. Upon doing this, he rubs the ashes on his forearm and her father's name, Gebhardt, appears on his skin in bloody letters. This leaves Bess completely terrified and she screams (coughs) and she runs out. Well, he runs after her, calms her down. Sweetheart, it was just a trick. The Houdinis tried several things to make money. Times were tough for them. He was desperate. He asked well-known magicians if they needed an assistant. No, they didn't need no stinking assistant. Thanks for asking. Believe it or not, Houdini even approached several major New York newspapers offering to sell them all of his prized secrets. Wait, what? The great Houdini offering to reveal his deepest secrets, they all turned down the $20 offer. Now, to me, it's kind of funny. These days, people will pay a million dollars for a piece of toast that looks like Yoda. He even opened a magic school. And besides his one loyal student, an elderly gentleman from Chicago, no other takers. His need for money to support him and Bess led him to Dr. Hill's traveling medicine show, which, mm, hate to say it, it was basically considered the lowest possible rung of entertainment. One day, Dr. Hill suggests to Houdini that they do something different, something unique. Conduct a seance, he requested. Houdini was quite confident, telling Dr. Hill that he would raise the dead in every county. Houdini was a sneaky fellow, he was. He trained best how to appear as if she was suddenly put into a trance. The audience would then become kind of comfortable, you know, start asking her questions about spirits and such. Well, what they didn't know is that 
while in a town where he was to perform, Houdini would visit the cemeteries and graveyards and would write down names of the deceased. So while on stage performing, he would have names to, you know, throw out to the audience during these seances. He had a guy, in addition to this, who would know of local tragedies and history about the families and the towns, and this helped, making the seances seem even more legit. I mean, here he has these names and, you know, this personal information. It's no shock that this was wrong, morally and legally. I mean, many a medium were getting arrested for doing exactly what Houdini was doing. Taking money from unsuspecting people and mourners under false pretenses. He wanted out. Mm-mm, this was not for him. This wasn't him. This was not the great Houdini. He worked way too hard to be known as some stupid phony. At one point, a man told him that he was communicating with his dead son. And Houdini saw this man as being truthful. He replied, It must be a wonderful feeling to be able to converse with your son, or in fact with anyone who you loved in your heart of hearts. I don't mind telling you that your very seriousness makes me doubly interested to find the truth or solve the problem. So he started doing the dime museums again. This is where things would change for the better. A man put an offer on the table that Houdini couldn't say no to. Abandon the tricks and he will bring him on to work with him. And this was not just your random average Joe. His name was Martin Beck and he happened to be the proprietor of the largest vaudeville theaters in the country. Houdini gave away his prized pigeons and other items that he no longer needed. Then it got really crazy. I kind of want to talk a little bit about some of the intense crazy moments of Houdini's career. While researching, I found many crazy stunts and wanted to share some of my favorites. Houdini, as we know, was an escape artist. There's no doubt about that. He visited towns and he would arrange to be locked up so to say, and would break himself out of jail and whatever else. I mean, his file was filled to the brim with hundreds of letters from police chiefs that he broke out of their fine establishments. One time he was in Europe and decided to visit Scotland Yard. The superintendent handcuffed Houdini himself and he escaped his confinement before the soup's very eyes. In 1899, the great Houdini found himself confined at the St. Louis police headquarters. Stripped naked, his mouth was sealed to prove that there was no pick, no key, no other kind of tool possible that could be hidden there. The chief and his detectives handcuffed Houdini's hands behind his neck and double-locked the neck cuff to his back. He laughed. He asked them for more chains. They also placed irons on his legs. They left him alone, and within two minutes, you guys, one, two, two minutes, he had slipped out of his chains and what have you. To say the least, the police were absolutely shocked. He shares with them that he had been studying locks his whole life and knew more about them than any man alive. He ensured the PD that there was nothing supernatural about this, just that he was extremely strong and he knew what he was doing. He was known as the handcuff king, and throughout his career, 
he had escaped many a locks. Another case in 1906, Houdini was stripped, double cuffed, and ironed, and put in a cell in Boston's notorious Somerset Street Prison. In 16 minutes, he had broken out of his confinement. Not only that, but he managed to unlock every cell on that block. He made his way through two iron barred doors that were indeed secured with complex locks. He then slipped into his cell on the first floor where his clothing was being kept. I mean, impressive, right? Damned impressive. He then made his escape, walking past prison guards unnoticed. Now, (laughs) the most intense one in my book has to be his escape from Murderer's Row, containing 17 cells. This murderous wing contained prisoners, seven of whom were convicted murderers. They put Houdini in cell number two, the former home of the man who assassinated President James Garfield back in 1881. The cell was now home to a man who smothered his wife to death. They stripped Houdini and searched him. He was then locked into the cell with the wife killer, who thankfully kept his distance. The police were confident that Houdini was stuck. The lock to his cell was not reachable from the inside. The doors sunk into the walls three feet uh, from the corridor. There were more precautions and complicated matters to the system, but in just a couple short minutes, Houdini was free. Not only did he free himself from Murderer's Row, but what he does next? It's one for the legendary books. He unlocks the door of Richard Chase. No, no, obviously not the vampire Sacramento serial killer. Wrong timing. But a man who was serving time for manslaughter. This leaves Chase stunned. What the hell is this man, who's naked, doing? Houdini orders the shocked man, demanding him to follow him at once. Well, Chase follows the naked Houdini to the cell of a man named Clarence Howlett. When asked what he's in for, Clarence replies, I'm a housebreaker. In which Houdini tells him, hmm, not a good one or you'd be free. You'd be out of here already. Oh, Houdini. Well, Houdini takes the housebreaking Howlett out of his cell and places the manslaughtering Chase in it and then puts Howlett in Chase's cell. He does this with each inmate on that block. And remember, you guys, there are a handful of murderers there. He then opens yet another cell, this one containing his clothing. The escape took 21 minutes. And I mean, it wasn't just jail escapes, as we know. I mean, he's escaped from a whale's carcass, being buried alive, being submerged in water, milk, and oh so much more. He's had some scares, too. I believe this was the first attempt at being buried alive. He talks about that harrowing, haunting experience, and I want to read that now. The knowledge that I was six feet under the sod gave me the first thrill of horror I had ever experienced. The momentary scare, the irretrievable mistake of all daredevils, nearly cost me my life, for it caused me to waste a fraction of breath. (gasps) When every fraction was needed to pull through, I had kept the sand loose about my body so that I could work dexterously. I did. But as I clawed and kneed the earth, my strength began to fail. Then I made another mistake. I yelled. Ah! Or at least I attempted to. 
and the last remnants of my self-possession left me. Then, instinct stepped into the rescue. With my last reserve strength, I fought through more sand than air entering my nostrils. The sunlight came like a blinding blessing. And my friends about the grave said that chalky, pale, and wide-eyed as I was, I presented a perfect imitation of a dead man rising. The next time I am buried, it will not be alive if I can help it. Later on, Houdini would be buried alive again. He was trying to beat the record of an Egyptian man. He refused to have a repeat of his first time. He began to cancel plans and engagements. I mean, one time he told a friend, I can't dine with you this afternoon at six because I have to go down at five. No, he wasn't talking about taking a nap. The great Houdini had a special casket that he would be sealed in and submerged in for 30 minutes. And this became like a daily routine for him. Not your average, oh, let's take the dog for a walk kind of routine. This was, okay, I'm getting at a casket for 30 minutes routine. Hmm. Let's journey to the year 1926. It's the 22nd day of October. Side note, in 56 years, I'll be born on that day. Something happens on this day that changes Houdini's life forever. Time is running out for Eric Weiss, the handcuff king. Harry Houdini, the great Houdini, is about to expire. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Two McGill University students are visiting with Houdini in his dressing room. Houdini is kind of just like standing there, rifling through his mail. When suddenly one of the students, Jay Gordon Whitehead, asks Houdini if, hey, you know, is the tell true that, you know, that you can withstand any blow to the abdomen? Harry told Whitehead that indeed he could if he was given time to brace for the blow. I mean, immediately after saying this, Whitehead proceeds to hit Houdini in the abdomen. Not once, not twice, not even three times, but four times, four blows to the abdomen. Whitehead will claim that he believed that Houdini had indeed braced himself. But even if he did, I mean, come on, are you serious? Four freaking times? This Whitehead dude is off his rocker. This causes severe pain for Houdini. I mean, he's okay for a little while. And then, you know, he would perform that evening the whole time in excruciating pain. Again, time is running out for the escape artist. Tick-tock, tick-tock. For the next two days, he does not find any comfort, nor is he sleeping, and he is still in great amounts of pain. He doesn't seek medical help, no medical attention. When he can't take it anymore, he finally goes to the doctor. His temperature is at a dangerous 102, and he has acute appendicitis. It is requested that he have surgery immediately. Sadly, he puts off the emergency surgery, one that may have saved his life, possibly. He put it off so he could complete that night's show. Tick tock, tick tock. The show, the audience would remember it for the rest of their days, probably, but not because it was impressive, unforgettable, memorable. It's remembered because it will be Houdini's last show. 
By the time Houdini gets on stage, his temperature has risen to a staggering 104 degrees. He was in the worst pain he's ever felt in his life. He was tired from missing so many nights of sleep. His assistants often found themselves that night having to help him with the simplest of things. He was missing his cues and seemed rather rushed. The audience, they were confused. This is not what they were expecting, most certainly, from the great Houdini. Mind you, they had no clue that just days earlier he had been attacked. And yes, I I call it a attack. Whitehead asked a question. He didn't ask, hey, brace yourself or challenge him. Then he hits the man four times in that area. Houdini was indeed attacked. Absolutely. Anyway, in the middle of his third and final act, Houdini asks for the curtain to be lowered as he just simply cannot go on anymore. The curtain comes down and so does he. He collapses. Still, this man is refusing medical help. I mean, what is it? Is it pride? Stubbornness? Denial? What is it? Something's terribly wrong here. His wife, Bess, desperately urges him, sweetheart, go get help. He finally does, but not until the next morning. He has his appendix removed. However, the damage, you guys, it's already done. His appendix has been ruptured. His survival, not looking good. And sadly, on October 31st, surrounded by family, he dies. I found an obituary. And it reads, Harry Houdini died after operations, Detroit, October 31st. Harry Houdini, world famous as a magician, a defier of locks and sealed chests, and an exposer of spiritualist frauds, died this afternoon after a week's struggle for life in which he underwent two operations. Death was due to peritonitis, which followed the first operation, that for appendicitis. The second operation was performed last Friday. Like a newly discovered serum used for the first time in Houdini's case, it was of no avail. You know, it is such a sad ending to a man who lived such an incredible, adventurous life. When he died, several people claiming to be mediums came around saying, hey, the great Houdini was communicating with me. It wasn't just a handful of mediums. I mean, it was hundreds of them claiming to have received a message from Houdini's spirit. Mm. One thing, though, he prepared for his death and he communicated with Sweet Bess that when he dies, that if he is ever to return from the grave, he would speak to her in a code that only she would understand. He knew the world was full of phonies. You know, he kind of partaked in that, as we mentioned earlier. And he didn't want his wife, now widow, to have to deal with this. So if he came back, she would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this was, in fact, her beloved husband coming back and not some loser trying to get attention or make a quick buck. After he died, Bess, she would lock herself in a dark room each and every Sunday. She would stare into the eyes of her late husband at a portrait on the wall and pray for a message, waiting for a sign. This went on for a year. After no success, she offered a $10,000 bounty to any 
medium who could bring her the coded message from her beloved. And on the anniversary of Houdini's death, Halloween, a seance was conducted in attempts to bring forth Houdini's spirit. While several tried and failed, one man, a pastor from the First Spiritualist Church in New York City named Arthur Ford, did indeed pique Bess's interest. He shared with her that in early 1928, he had gone into a trance, and while in the company of friends, there seemed to be an anxious spirit calling herself Cecilia that had come through. He believed it to be Houdini's mother, Cecilia Weiss, giving a message from beyond the grave. The message? Telling her son, Harry Houdini, to forgive. Bess immediately wrote Ford, quote, Strange that the word forgive is the word Houdini waited in vain all of his life. It was indeed the message for which he always secretly hoped, and if he had been given to him while he was still alive, it would, I know, have changed the entire course of his life, but it came too late. Aside from this, there are one or two trivial inaccuracies. Houdini's mother called him Eric. There was nothing in the message that could be contradicted. I might also say that this is the first message which I have received which has an appearance of truth. However, it didn't end there with a pastor Ford. He would, along with some of his congregation, meet with Bess in her home located on Payson Avenue in New York. He claims that the day before he had been given the code words, this is what Bess has been waiting for since her husband had died, right? Ford holds the code words that will prove that the magician's spirit is around and communicating and survived death. The code? Rosabelle. Answer. Tell. Pray. Answer. Look. Tell. Answer. Answer. Tell. Bess, well, she's in shock. No, she's stunned. Without a morsel of a doubt, this is the coded message her husband said he would return with. So, in the earlier years, Houdini and Bess performed a telepathy act together. When they would speak to each other on stage, it seemed normal and innocent enough. But what they were truly doing was carefully using a chosen selection of words, keywords, to secretly communicate letters of the alphabet. Not one living person knew this code besides Houdini and Bess. The code message read, Rosabelle, believe. In her heart of hearts, oh, Bess knew her husband had came through. This stranger would not have known the code unless someone who knew it, her or her late husband, told him. And she sure as hell didn't tell him. Before we end, I, I must share the seance that it is thought Houdini made an appearance. One January day, Bess met with Arthur Ford. A seance was planned. An audience is sitting there waiting in utmost anticipation. You could feel the eagerness in the air. You could taste the excitement in the air. You could feel the adrenaline run through your veins. Ford goes into a trance and soon starts speaking in a voice not of his own. Rosabelle, sweet Rosabelle, believe. Thank you, sweetheart. Now take off your wedding ring and tell them what Rosabelle means. 
Bess takes off her wedding ring as requested and starts to sing the lyrics to a song she had performed at one of her very first shows with her late husband. Rosabelle, sweet Rosabelle, I love you more than time can tell. Over me you cast the spell. I love you, my sweet Rosabelle. You see, it is these words that are inscribed inside of Bess's wedding ring. His spirit had more to share. Spare no time or money to undo my attitude of doubt while on earth. Now that I have found my way back, I can come often, sweetheart. Give yourself to placing the truth before all those who have lost the faith and want to take hold again. Believe me, life is continuous. Tell the world there is no death. I will be close to you. I expect to use this instrument many times in the future. Tell the world, sweetheart, that Harry Houdini lives and will prove it a thousand times. Bess, she was ecstatic. Her true love has come back and communicated with her. Many skeptics cried, hoax, fake, simple entertainment. She backed up forward and the seance, even writing a statement on her own stationery. Now, it turns out that in later years, Bess would have a change of heart, recanting her statement. So, I don't know, what really happened? Did he come through or not? Did he communicate and she was harassed daily by countless people? Remember, her husband was a very well-known man. I mean, taking that pleasure from her, you know, taking the pleasure that he communicated with her, feeling that she had to recant. I mean, I guess it's just one for the mystery books. I don't know. Tradition continues, though. Every Halloween on the anniversary of Houdini's death, people around the world conduct seances trying to conjure his spirit. Now, one last thing, speaking of seances, and it has to do with Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, I can't have a Houdini episode and not mention the Teddy Roosevelt seance, right? So... Houdini meets Teddy on Emperor, sailing from England to America. He wants to show Roosevelt some entertainment, and Houdini actually offers to leap into North Atlantic, handcuffed and free himself in the frigid, ice-cold waters. Uh, you know, that was kind of a huge no with the ship's captain, and <laughs> can't blame him. Teddy asks for a seance instead later that night. He was ill. I mean, his most recent expedition to the River of Doubt had taken a lot out of him, almost took his life. Two of his men and his party had died, and he almost became a third. He had a high temperature of 105 and malaria fever. So at this point, Houdini says, you know, I mean, he has said goodbye to seances long ago. He doesn't really do them anymore. But, of course, he is more than happy to conduct one for the aiming colonel. So Houdini asks him to write a question for the spirits. Happily and eagerly, Roosevelt does as asked. He writes a question, shielding it from Houdini in the process. He then folds it, seals it on an envelope. Houdini holds up two spirit slates that kind of look to be like smallish chalkboards, if you will, show that they're blank. And then Teddy puts the envelope between them. The question, where was I last Christmas? Houdini unties the slates, revealing a map of the river of doubt. And indeed, 
He had just been there during the holiday. Ted roars in excitement. By George, that proves it. I mean, he didn't know he was going to ask that question, you know? He had no time to prep, no time to do anything. It's not like he could go on the internet and wiki something or, you know, do some research on the computer. Uh, So no, I mean, it was great. Another wave of excitement hits when he sees that it is signed by the late English journalist W.T. Stead who sailed to America on the beautiful but doomed Titanic, meeting his final end in the freezing North Atlantic. Teddy, he puts his arm around Houdini, asks that the phenomena the night before was genuine spiritualism. Houdini smiles, winks, and says it was hocus pocus, Colonel. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Of course you did. Listen to the others, you guys. They're equally phenomenal. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry, my friends. You can bitch listen right now. Go to Spotify, Podcast Republic, Apple Podcast, Pocket Cast, CastBox, Deezer, and so many others. Basically, you guys, wherever you listen to your other kick-ass podcast, you can find Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. See you next week. Scott Jackson had a pregnant girlfriend, Pearl Bryan was her name. He and Alonzo Walling met her at the train. That night a plot unfolded, poor Pearl lost her life. Scott and Alonzo both hung for that crime.